Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Bridget Meehan, who is based in Ireland and is a community activist and public policy researcher. She is the co-founder of Our Money, the campaign for a mutual bank in the north of Ireland, and the co-founder of Collaboration for Change, a network of progressive activists across Ireland. Welcome back for the second time, Bridget. Thank you, Vincent. Yeah, we... we, uh, Went a little long last time, and I didn't get to ask you nearly anything or everything I wanted to ask you. So let's sort of kick off with, well, first of all, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's all good here. It's still summer, um, so <laughs> enjoying that. Right on, right on. Um, I, wa- I wanted to start by talking about the Brexit situation. Is that okay to start with? Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's start talking about the Brexit situation and sort of how it's perceived right now and more broadly, um, you know, vis-a-vis Ireland and the EU. You know, what are different political groups saying? What's the left's position as far as you can tell in Ireland? Uh, and then what's just kind of the general sense from the public on the issue of Brexit? Yeah. Um, Brexit was, I suppose, a bit of a shock to everybody. Um, even the people who supported Brexit in Britain, the Brexiteers, I don't think they believed that they were actually going to win the referendum. So um, the morning that the results came through, there was just sort of a state of shock um, across Britain, but also in Ireland, maybe even more so in Ireland, because I I just, there's been such... um, in Ireland, people are so favourable towards the EU that the idea that somebody would want to leave, it, they just couldn't comprehend it. And then because, you know, Britain is our closest neighbour and they're sort of in our way if we try to go to Europe, uh, onto continental Europe. So they're sort of in between uh, us and Europe. And uh, so you're going to have this country in between us and Europe that aren't actually in the EU. Um so there was that shock and definitely there was a lot of anger. Uh, people that normally, you know, a lot of journalists and a lot of um, kind of the the usual kind of people working in civic society uh, really spoke out and were angry when they heard that, that the, the um, campaign had actually won and that Britain was going to be leaving the EU. Um, in Britain, there was a lot of anger too, but mostly because people had supported it. They, you know, they were mostly happy enough that they were they were going to leave. Um, in the north of Ireland, um, because it's under British jurisdiction, um, they they got to vote in the referendum. So uh, up here, we got to vote in the referendum, and in the north, the the actual vote was about fifty four percent. Um, to stay in Europe. So the majority of people here actually wanted to stay in Europe. Um, and it was mostly the, the most people supporting leaving Europe where the kind of Protestant loyalists uh, type of population, that uh, unionist population that wanted to agree, what, you know, they saw leaving Europe with Britain would keep them in the United Kingdom. And that was the kind of that union was what they were trying to preserve. So um, it's very divided up here uh, in the north um, with the political parties because um, you've got about half the parties, but you know, Sinn Féin, the SDLP, who are sort of the Republican and Nationalist parties. You've got the Alliance, who are sort of people that sit in the middle. Um, they, They wanted to to stay in Europe, and then you've got the unionist parties who wanted to leave Europe. Um, so that's how the situation's divided politically. So you can get, it's actually really difficult to get any kind of agreement or consensus on even small things that are going to happen regarding Brexit and the kind of uh, deal that the North might be able to get. Um, because the, there's complete division right down the, the middle of, of these parties. Um, I think they, they, in the South, the political parties are pretty much all appalled that uh, Brexit is going to happen. And they 
are very supportive of the EU and supportive of staying there. And that even includes, you know, a more left sort of or centre left party like Sinn Féin. They will stay in the EU, even though they're critical of it, um, because, you know, they know it's a neoliberal federalist state. But at the same time, um, what is the point in leaving something when you're going to be out on your own? The big challenges facing people now are are going to need international cooperation, not people um, heading off and doing things alone, especially small countries. and island countries can do so little uh, on a global level when you're on your own. Um, the British, uh, that hasn't really sunk in with the British yet. <laughs> they don't realize they're just a small island. They still think they're an empire or something. <laughs> so um, <laughs> um, so the political situation down south would be that um, everybody is would rather that Britain wouldn't leave the EU and would rather that we all stayed as kind of big EU happy family kind of thing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so no, no, no. Keep going. Keep going if you want. Um, well, the only party that maybe came out strongly in the south against or uh, in support of of Brexit or you know the idea that you should leave the EU would have been people before profit, who are a more left leaning party, and their view was that the EU is so right wing. And it's so neoliberal that uh, you're better to be outside of it. Um, and I can understand some of that, but I just think practically it doesn't really work. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things going to be lost now, and there's a lot of uh, concern about what it's going to do to Ireland, the island, because you've got the north that's going to be outside the EU, the south that's going to be still in the EU, and how is that going to affect? Um, trade, but even movement of people um, and all the things that we've come to, even though there's a border there, it's being in the EU and the changes to EU law have made um, the border almost invisible. So that is going to become a, a bigger issue now. What will it mean and how strict will the European, the Europeans be about their border here in Ireland? They don't want to be strict, but the British are digging their heels in so much that they could end up being very strict about it. And that's really going to cause a lot of problems for people living in Ireland. Um, Whether they want to see themselves as British or Irish, it doesn't matter. It's going to be problematic because we do a lot of trade between, you know, both sides. And um, we sort of, in a lot of things, we, we actually behave like one country. So our electricity market's all the one thing and a lot of our farming policies are, are, are the same. So there's, there's problems ahead for it. And I was going to ask, especially in this context of COVID, I mean, there has to be, what have the conversations looked like? It, it seems to add a whole nother layer of complexities now that we're in the midst of this pandemic in terms of the movement of people, the flow of goods, how we make the, you know, you mentioned earlier that we need more international institutions. I think most people would agree who are looking at, you know, problems like the pandemic or climate change. What has yeah. been, how has this played out in the context of the pandemic? And have there been like further debates or conversations since the pandemic has started? Like, hey guys, this is what the plan was prior to the pandemic, but now we, we're in the midst of this pandemic. What the heck does this look like now? Yeah, I think if you had been living um, either here or in Britain since the referendum, you would think that the only thing, the only problem anybody had was Brexit. (laughs) It was all the news talked about, mainstream media, the newspapers, people on the street, um, in workplaces everywhere. It was just everybody was obsessed with this and what kind of disaster that was going to bring um, to Ireland and how terrible it was going to be in Britain and all the rest of it. The pandemic sort of um, uh, kind of brought those conversations to a halt because there was suddenly this very immediate threat um, that had to be dealt with. So Brexit has, has been sort of almost forgotten. Um, and even now as we're sort of uh, trying to move out of lockdown situations, um, 
still Brexit hasn't reached the level of, of conversation that it would have had before or the level of attention. Um, and there's only going to be now in December, that's the, the actual cutoff date. That's when um, Britain is, there's been a transition, a kind of a time where, okay, we know you're going and now we're going to give you a wee bit of grace time to kind of sort out some, some of your deals or some agreements and then you're gone. Well, December is the actual cutoff date and that's very, very close now. But because of the pandemic, nobody's even been thinking about that. Um, the pandemic, the way it, it played out, you could see the differences and the problems because of the of the two jurisdictions on, on the island. So you had the south of Ireland went into lockdown very, very quickly. Um, it helped maybe that the, the Taoiseach, the, the Prime Minister, was you know, was a doctor, a, a medical doctor. So he probably had a bit more of a sense that this could be a problem. So the, the country went down into lockdown very quickly, two or three weeks before Britain. You know, they, Ireland was in lockdown when Boris Johnson was saying, hey, here, immunity and we'll be okay kind of thing. Um, so Britain was like really slow to address this and recognize that this could be a problem and in the north um you had the unionist parties wanting to do whatever westminster was telling them because they follow everything that's said from there and they're british of course and so they want you know they they're protesting how british they are so they want to do everything according to what westminster was doing so even though that was kind of looking about reckless to follow them and to um you know, be as slow to react to the pandemic, they still, and if it was going to cost lives, it, it didn't really matter. They were just still going to follow Westminster. And then you had the kind of nationalist or the Republican Party saying, we can't actually follow Westminster. They don't know what they're doing. We should be maybe looking at what's happening in the South, or at least trying to keep what's happening in Ireland consistent, North and South of the border. Um, and that, that didn't really happen, but, you know, things happened very fast with the pandemic. So you weren't looking at months of waiting to react. You were looking just at weeks or days. Um, so very soon, um, the North was in lockdown as well. And they, the, the, two, the two places sort of um, started to maybe coordinate a bit better. Um, and, and so th that was kind of the, the difference that it made. Um, they, I don't think they had any kind of real uh, unity as in you know, the, together showing a united front, but there was probably things in the background where they were talking, officials were talking to each other and saying, right, how do we make sure that we don't, that your action doesn't cause it to spread down south or our action doesn't cause it to spread up north and, you know, that kind of thing. But they did, they weren't doing that in a public way. And the two different um, seats of government were sort of doing their own thing, really. Um, so that that's how that all played out. Um, but, I mean, you can see now, as we're coming out the other side of this pandemic, although I don't even know if it is really the other side of this pandemic, but as they're trying to come out of lockdown, um, the South was a bit, a bit slower about how it was doing that. The British were really trying to go forward very quickly with it. Um, and I, I think a lot of that was just economics. And the, the North sort of was, didn't quite follow the Westminster lead then. They were a bit slower. So Westminster would do something first and then they would wait a while and then they would then follow through in that, uh, um, you know, easing that restriction. Um, so there was no real coordination between North and South when they were sort of starting to ease restrictions. But now, I mean, the South is starting to see a rise again in, in some cases and some deaths, and the North is seeing the same thing. So who knows what um, the more restrictions may be needed, but I can't see them doing that in a coordinated way this time around either, if that is needed. So it's just one example of how the, the stupid border and you know and the country makes something quite difficult on a really tiny island to be you know quibbling over 
differences like that, when it's about people's lives, when it's about safety, when it's about trying to do the right thing. Right. Mm. So this, that's a great point. I mean, it's like the colonial relationship, what it means then in the time of a crisis. Um, this is the same in the United States. I mean, look at our, the Native American uh, reservations, uh, indigenous communities, black communities, and immigrant communities are just being ravaged. So like all of the borders, whether they're invisible or real borders that have been set up for the last 200 plus years here, mm-hmm. you know, now this crisis hits and it, it, it exacerbated existing problems. Um, what do you, so what, what does that look like now for you? So it's, it's not as coordinated, of course, as, as we would hope it to be, but what does it look like <clears throat> you're in the north of Ireland what what do the restrictions look like? Like, could you go to, say, a pub if you wanted to and, like, go have drinks? Or are there, like, restaurants open, shopping malls? What does this look yeah. like? Yeah. Uh, okay. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking about some of the things that, you know, the way people uh, work around, or they get very creative about how they can still, you know, do the things they want to do um, right. when they're not allowed to anymore. Um, I mean, it was... I think it was back in May and there was bars in Derry that they were all closed at that point, but they were, um, you could buy a keg from a bar and they would come to your house and set it up so that you would have the, the, the pump to be able to pull draft beer and stuff. So people were bringing the, the pub to the, the house kind of thing. Um, we never did that. I don't need 90 pints of beer. Um, but uh, right now, um, they were actually they were actually moving ahead quite quickly each week there was a new restriction being eased um and they've had to slow that down because they've seen cases rise but where we are now i think um hotels opened um and this is again to try and coincide with the, the tourist season you know the the summer the kind of, such as we such as it is here but um you know it was trying to make sure that every hotel wouldn't go down the tubes um and they were really at risk of that so they they opened hotels they opened restaurants and bars that sold food and that could sell food they were allowed to open as well but the the ordinary bar or the wee kind of spit on the floor job that people local that people go to that those bars couldn't open um so uh and that's still the case that they and god knows when they're going to be able to open um when you go into if you go to get something to eat um you have to book in advance um all the seating spaced out they've had to take out most of the seating and make sure people are spaced out and some some places that have enough space they have you know kind of uh perspex uh kind of partitions around seating areas um and then they they tell you things like you've got an hour and a half and then you've got to go you know so there's no kind of freedom to wander in when you want eat and stay for as long as you want to you know it's it's kind of had they've had to tighten up those rules they won't be able to make any money otherwise if they don't do this so it's difficult for them um people were finally able to get their hair cut in july um so there was like uh, just anybody who could cut hair was making an absolute fortune for a while because everybody was just racing out to get their hair cut. Um, but things like uh, beauty salons and, and that kind of thing, I don't think they've opened um, because it's too, the contact is too close and they can't really keep that uh, much. They can't keep enough distance there. Um, I think, you know, like, um, what do you call those therapies? Uh, like uh, okay, complementary therapies. Like you know, massage and uh, mm-hmm. aromatherapies and stuff. None of that is open. Um, nobody can do that. Um, the the schools were on holiday, uh, holidays anyway. But now they're all sort of supposed to be opening. I think from this week onwards, a lot of them are are starting to reopen. Um, I think that that is crazy because you know you're going to have all those children mixing with each other coming home with whatever they've picked up at school, passing that on to whatever family members. You could have vulnerable family members at home. I just don't know how that's going to work. Um, you could see a real spike there when the schools go back fully. Um, 
and public transport that's that's up and running but it's again you have to be careful of social distancing and all that most of the retail shops are open almost every every shop is is open again and they have been open for a long time so i'm trying to think that's about i was going to ask yeah. how of the workers who are so you have workers who are still out of work who just can't go to their jobs because the places mm -hmm. are closed but then you probably have workers who are going back to their jobs but aren't making nearly as much money, particularly those in like the service, retail, tourist industry. Because our town, the town that I live in, is also a sort of quasi-tourist town uh, in the summer months. And I know that all the servers and bartenders and people working at the hotels didn't make nearly as much money as they normally would make. What kind of provisions has the government put in place for workers in terms of payments, unemployment benefits, things like this? I mean, is there are there benefits for people who are working but not making the same kind of money that they were making before, or are the benefits only for people who are out of work? It depends. Um, again, both sides of the border are doing it differently um, because they've got different benefit systems. So um, what they had for workers who, um, during the pandemic, they were called furloughed workers who um, still have their job because their place of business hasn't closed down, but they just can't, aren't allowed to be open. So they were um, given um, a certain amount of money. I think it was about 80% of their salaries um, by the government. Um, small businesses as well that, you know, sometimes there could be a sole trader or whatever, or, you know, somebody who's self-employed. There was a business loan scheme, a small business loan scheme, and there was um, also a self-employed scheme um, to help those people, to give them a bit of money. Um, what'll happen now when, when basically the furlough scheme, it's, it's pretty much winding up because they're saying, well, lockdown's over and you're just going to have to go back to work. What's happened is that, um, some people have been forced to go back to work, whether they feel it's safe or not, whether the workplace is safe or not. Yep. And uh, otherwise they're going to lose their job and then they would just be totally at the mercy of the benefit system, which in Britain is, you know, the, the Tories have tried to just decimate that. Um, so the, the, the kind of protections that have been put in place um, in the North are slowly, you know, for workers who have been affected by the pandemic, that that's slowly being sort of taken away again. And they're either being forced out to work um, or if they um, if they lose their job, if, if they're, they're, there's been a lot of closures of different places here, uh, different retail outlets um, and small shops. And, you know, that, that kind of sector has really lost out and, and bar work is just, most people can't go back to that work and, and there's bars closing. So um, those people are just seen as you're unemployed. So that is no different from an unemployed person at any other time. And you'll, um, you're not gonna get any kind of special protection because you were a worker who lost their job because of COVID. Um, so that, we haven't actually seen that uh, that that is that is on the way if you know what i mean that's going to start happening now as the furlough scheme unwinds and as business st businesses start to go to the wall more you're going to see a lot more people having to just claim benefits and th they're really going to struggle and like we have so many food banks here people practically living out of food banks because they can't afford to buy food and that that's just going to get worse uh, in the south um, the South had a scheme as well for, for workers. Um, they gave them, I think maybe 350 or something euros a week for uh, every week. Um, and then that, I think that is, did that go down maybe a hundred euros there just in the last couple of weeks? And I think next month that's going to stop as well so it's kind of it it's not much different from what britain's been doing um but it's uh that's going to be 
another disaster waiting to happen is all the people then who maybe think that they're going to be going back to work because the furlough scheme's over and they either can't go back to work or their work place of work closes down. So I'm sure it's the same in the States and everywhere else as well. And you see, and that's the real tragedy of this too, because um, I think it speaks to the kind of economic system we have. Why can't it be resilient? If it can't manage something like this, then it's no good for us. It has to be more resilient than this. We, we don't, you know, and because it's profit driven, and the neoliberal system is entirely profit driven, then, and it, it depends on overconsumption so that when, it can't make profits when we're not consuming things that we don't need to buy. And um, it's going to, you're just going to see the whole thing really sort of implode. And you can see the weaknesses and they're starting to show now. I would think that an economic system that was worth anything should be able to withstand crises like this. You know, it's not like there's, it's not like there's no food out there. It's not like there's no, um, there's no work to be done. But because of our system, we're going to have people who will starve to death or will depend on charity for food or who will be evicted from their homes or um, won't be able to, you know, their landlords will be kicking them out or all of that there. That that doesn't need to happen. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I totally agree. I was going to ask, are those conversations taking place? I mean, do you see that? In other words, in the U.S., I have seen... I think both in the mainstream, but outside of the mainstream, newspapers, magazines, TV, media, there's been more of a discussion about the kind of economic system we live under. Um, has that been the case as well? I mean, are you seeing some of the same? Uh, in some quarters, um, you know, obviously the kind of people that I'm in contact with and I'm nice. talking to um, are saying, oh, this could be a really good opportunity to, you know, get rid of this horrible system that we've got. Um, and there's, you know, we're sort of looking to see how how that could be done. Um, and there would be a more sort of wider civic society, um, people saying, you know, that the recovery has to be fair. So when we come out the other end of this, we, we should be making sure it shouldn't be just about economic recovery. It should be about making that a fair recovery and there's not people going to be real casualties of it. Um, but I, I don't see in anywhere, uh, like except sort of, um, kind of people I would know myself, but I don't see in any kind of mainstream uh, arena where people are talking about um, this system has something really wrong with it. I don't think they're saying that. They're saying that maybe aspects of it need to be looked at, um, but they're they're really putting all their hope on the system to be able to get us out of this. So uh, even a scheme as stupid as one of the things that um, the Tories did in England, it was um, eat out to help out. You know, it's such a, a British kind of title, you know, um, you know, Dunkirk spirits kind of thing and you you get this voucher and if you go out um, and eat out somewhere in one of the few places that are open or whatever or you know uh, you can get this voucher and you get so much money off this and this is to kind of help Jesus Christ I know I know I can't, I'm sorry I mean I was trying to like take it as seriously as I can and I'm like this is like a <laughs> fucking coupon that says like McDonald's would give you like a happy meal that's like come back for two dollars off your next cheeseburger <laughs> well it's it's kind of oh, I, I'm God. not sure if they if they actually get give it in coupons or but it's kind of like there's a deal being done that you know they'll they'll, they'll They'll Instead of just giving it. everybody money and being like, hey, everybody just stay home. You don't have to go work yeah. at this restaurant and you don't have to go pretend like you're helping everyone by eating a fucking cheeseburger. <laughs> like, here's money for everybody and everybody could just stay home and be healthy and we don't have to pretend like we're yeah. Jesus. Yeah, Christ. I know. And it's like eat out to help out. I mean, it's just so, it's it's a, it's along the same vein of, you know, you can save the planet by by spending your money and being yeah. a consumer on green products, you know, right. they never say, what about cutting back on that? But, you know, so they never do the right thing, but it's, um, you know, or, or, you know, you can spend your way out of the recession and, you know, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's always about 
protecting and, and bolstering neoliberalism. Uh, that's what it always is. And that'll come before uh, health and safety and that'll be that'll come before people keeping a roof over their heads or feeding their children or anything else. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you about keeping a roof over people's heads. What are the protections for homeowners and renters? <sighs> that, that is pretty poor. Um, okay. That what they did was um, they had a sort of, if you were going to be evicted, you get three extra months. <laughs> so you could be, you, know, you had three extra months to stay in the house that they were going to evict you from. This is if you rented. Right. Um, so if you're in a position where, say, you have a mortgage and you've lost your job and you can't afford your mortgage, that's just the same as any other time that you're losing your mortgage. You know, you're, you're going to lose your house. Um, when it comes to private rent, um, they were they were hoping that you know I don't, I don't think they give any they didn't give landlords any kind of money to to make sure that their um bills or expenses were met um and that you know because the people their tenants couldn't afford to pay them there was nothing like that that happened and they, they just sort of said you know try to be a bit more patient or wait until um you know if, if somebody has to sign on that they can get um they can get rent you know housing benefit and and they'll be able to pay most of their rent through that so they've been basically pretty much using the existing benefit system to be able to get people through that and i haven't heard too much about people being evicted i think you know maybe Maybe most landlords were kind of thinking, what would it look like if I actually evicted somebody in the middle of this? You know, um, so it's it hasn't it hasn't been something that's that's been you know in the news a lot, or even that I've heard a lot about in in my own job, um, and I work sort of in, in public policy, but it's for a the advice sector and it's about benefits advice and stuff like that. So I haven't heard about lots and lots of evictions, but I think that could be on the cards pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about sort of what kind of work you're doing right now. I know you had mentioned that, um, you know, you're involved with different networks. You're put, you know, doing a lot of different things. And I'm wondering both what kind of work you're doing and then, well, maybe I'll just start with that and then we can, I'll ask you more questions as you tell me what kind of work you're doing. Okay. So do you mean like my pay job um, or my activism? Or both? Our friend calls it, uh, what does Bruce call it? Your five to nine. <laughs> he goes, I want to know your nine to five, but I want to know your five to nine hustle too. Um, uh, very good. No, no, no. Just, yeah, the kind of, I mean, mostly you could talk about both actually. I mean, you could talk about your experiences with both, but yeah, the kind of activist work you're doing, but as it relates to COVID, politics, what's happening? Yeah, um, well, I suppose I'll just focus on the activism, really, because that's that's what interests me most. Um, you know, I work for really nice people, and they're really good. And, you know, I, I, I like my job well enough, but if I could, you know, just focus on my activism all the time, that would be, <laughs> I prefer that. So I'll just, I'll just talk about that, um, and then how that if that has been any different during this pandemic and and has it made things even maybe the landscape more favorable for the kind of activism that involved in. So um, one of the big uh, pieces of work that I'm doing at the minute is with uh, a mutual bank. So we want to set up a mutual bank here in the north um, that, that is really about trying to democratize money so um, we have a really corrupt, really disgusting privatized financial system. And it's, it's not just in Ireland, that's right across the world. Um, we saw what they did in the 2008 crisis. Um, and they have not really been punished for that. And things haven't really changed since then. And, um, you know, we, especially here in the North, because we, we have no fiscal controls we have no power over taxation or we have no say in that um because of being ruled from westminster 
they what you have you know the, each government department that's here depends on a block grant of money that comes every year from Westminster and they can't they have no way of raising their own money um, they can't borrow money uh, so what do you do you just like the bag and bowl out depending on these people to give you money and you know they don't, don't get enough um, but so we're told, oh, you've got, you've got actually no money and you just depend on this thing. We're told as well that um, our only economic policy is foreign direct investment. So it's always looking to outside the region to see, will somebody come in and please set up a horrible, you know, call center, you know, modern day, uh, you know, slave shop. <laughs> just yeah. It's like a, being a slave and a, you know, galley slave um and it's just it's actually kind of a horrible situation but i would believe that we actually do have a lot of money in what we earn in our savings um it's not you know it's not billions and billions but it's a substantial amount of money and all that money sits in private bank accounts that is then uh, being used to make profits for shareholders and that's the same for everybody not just us here but um, the argument that we make in, in the, the mutual bank campaign is that if we had our own mutual bank that isn't even allowed, even if it wanted to, to invest in the money outside the region, it, has, it can only recycle it back into the region and focus on what's right for people here and what's right for businesses here and what's right for the environment here, that you would actually have all that money to be able to do something useful with it, maybe have social and um, social environmental value um, from that, um, and it would it would give you a say in what happens to your money. So it's really about democratizing the, the, the mon your money and the financial system, and that's why I'm really interested in it. It's not just a, another bank, um, you know, get, get a, a ten pound voucher if you if you open an account with us. It's not, you know, it's a substantially different thing. Um, so that's the campaign that I'm involved in. And it's really damned hard to get anybody, you know, you get a lot of people saying, this is a really great idea. This could be, you know, a real game changer for us here. Um, but it's trying to get people who have influence and who have some kind of, um, ability to persuade people to get them involved in the project so that you can really drive it forward and um, to give it some credibility so we, we've been lobbying and we've got we're actually gathering we've gathered a lot of support um, we are very close now to setting up the steering committee that then can um, go through the development stages you know the licensing process and do all the other development work and the financial modeling that has to happen. Um, the thing is, we, we're not making it all up ourselves. We're part of a network that started in Britain. Um, and they're a, a cooperative society that has this vision for like having 19 regional banks, mutual banks throughout Britain, and including one here in the north um, of Ireland. So um, they have a model already um, they um, have all the templates for the licensing process and all the, the financial modeling, and they have the complete IT system. So we've got everything there. Uh, we just need to tailor it for our specific needs here. Um, so we're not starting from scratch. I'm not completely insane. I'm going to start a bank all on my own. Like, That's what um, I was, that was, my next question was going to be, if, <laughs> who are you working with or if there are any models for this? Because I was like, man, yeah. I was trying to think of the things that you would, like the amount of responsibilities and complexities mm. that it must take to to set yeah, up. It's huge, and there's so there's so um, it's so restricted. You know, the regulations are so tight. Right. Um, you know, to, to set this thing up, and it's very very strict. It's the Bank of England license that you have to get, and they scrutinise it. You know, um, so you don't get away with just you know putting in an application form. I really want to bank. I think it would be a good idea. It's, it goes through a very formal process, but yeah, we, we, there is a network um, that is is doing that. In fact, Wales, there's about seven places in, in different regions in Britain that are already doing their campaigns, and there's one in Wales that um, 
the government has funded the entire thing. The Welsh government's fund, funded the entire thing, and they're going to open their doors on St David's Day next year, which is the 1st of March. Right so really exciting for them and, and just fair play to them. Um, but in the States, you would have some places that, that still have mutual banks. I think there's a bank in North Dakota that's um, that's got it's like uh, state owned or, or public owned in some way. And that allows them, like say a pandemic like this, or there's a, a downturn in the economy, they can weather that storm a good bit better. Because of course they've got access to their own money; it's not being hemorrhaged out, to, you know, to, onto financial markets and, you know, playing with hedge funds, you know, to make people, to make shareholders money. It's in the region and they can use it. So obviously they've got some resources then when bad times hit. And they, there's a whole load of these banks all over Europe. Um, in Germany, they've got Sparkassen, which is they're publicly owned. Um, but they have the same principles. They, they only can operate operate inside their own regions, and they they put their their members first. Um, all of these things are so important when it comes to um, to the kind of banking that can make a difference to, to people. And if you think about how awful um, these, you know, the, the the kind of money that's invested in fossil fuel companies, or you know big carbon polluters that you could reverse that if you have more mutual banks you could say well no all the money in this region anyway isn't going to be going out there to invest in those polluters it's going to be staying here and we actually choose to focus on um businesses that have some kind of social value or that have some kind of environmental value so you can completely turn that around and you're not dependent because this is another thing that's come out from uh, the covid uh crisis and actually before COVID had, uh, they were talking about this as a way to deal with the climate crisis that um, we're talking about green finance so the idea is that you would finance instead of investing money in, in these carbon polluters and all the rest you would actually invest the money in greener projects mm -hmm. but again that's you know you're dependent on them to do that Right. You're just, you know, you're, you're you're saying, let's keep the system intact and let's hope that they will and they will do the right thing and invest in green projects um, just because it's the right thing. Well, they're not. <laughs> they're not going to do that. They don't care. They don't seem to know that they live on this planet too. And if it goes down, we're all going down, you know. Yeah. Um, they, they think that there's going to be, yeah, they can build a, a station in space and they'll be able to love there that you know it's science fiction stuff but they you know these uh, people who uh, these investors these wealthy elites um trying to appeal to their better nature when they don't have one um and hoping that they're going to do the right thing for the climate or do the right thing when covid ha you know something like covid 19 happens that's just no good. Let's take the power out of their hands and put it in our own hands. And that's really, that's for me the beauty of of this this bank campaign, this mutual bank. And it's why I sort of believe so passionately in it. And, um, you know, doing this, um, trying to work on this, but um, it's a lot of hard work. But I think because of, of what, you know, the, what it can actually achieve, the benefits of it, I think are so worthwhile. I was going to ask yeah. you, we could, we, I could have ended right there because it was a great call to arms, like take the power out of their hands and put it in our hands. I was going to be like, stop, that's it. No, but I wanted to ask you, um, yeah, very quickly, there's a lot of new people coming into the movement. I think what you just said was great advice to people. Um, but there's a lot of new people coming into the movement here in the U S around black lives matter around the election coming up. Uh, I, I guess I'm just wondering what your advice would be, and maybe that's too broad. What is it that keeps you going in the light of so many, a lot of what we're trying to do is like always running up against brick walls and new barriers and new challenges. And, you know, for every 20 defeats, there's like one victory. So it's like, you know, this can wear on people, I think. And, and so with yeah. new people coming into the mix, I think it's nice for them to hear from people who have been engaged for a little while, you know? What what keeps you going? What's a lot? What allows you to do this, or are you just on the verge of totally losing your mind and going postal? 
<laughs> All of the above. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, no, it's, just pretend really like you're good. really put together right now and that everything is, is just perfect. And It's just so honky-dory. I know. Uh, yeah, okay. So lots of light. I see the, the nose growing. Um, uh, I, I think it's a good question because, and it's something that, um, you know, I talk about a lot with with people that I work with, other activists that I work with. Um, and, you know, the, the bank example, um, there's there are two people, me and another girl who are putting in most of the work to that. And we're doing it all for free. And you can feel sometimes I actually don't have another second of energy to give to this. I'm so exhausted with it. Um, I feel burned out or I feel deflated. But I think what, what, what drives me and um, I think, first of all, if I wasn't doing this, then what would I be doing? Like, do I just want more time to watch TV or put my feet up or, drugs. you know, okay. There's Lots dr- of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> so, you know, okay, we, we do need to relax. We do need to do all that. We, you know, we need to spend time with family and friends and, and all of those things. But um, for me to get up every day and feel that my life has some kind of purpose, I want to do something that I find meaningful anyway. So the activism does that. So it gives me a sense of purpose and meaning. So that's really important. That's probably not enough to to keep you fired up the whole time. So I just find that you just have to expect that for every step forward, you're going to go another one back. And then you know, sometimes you'll go two steps forwards and and forward and only one back. You know, so you do make a bit of progress, but it's it's really about um knowing what you're up against you know we we know that the the kind of it, it sounds so kind of conspiracy conspiracy theory theory but the corporate elites who do just own everything and they they control everything um they have so much in terms of resources they have everything to throw at it and they spend all their time thinking about how they're going to keep us all divided, keep us all down, keep us all thinking that there's no hope or keep us all sedated, whether it's with consumerism or, you know, entertainment or whatever. They spend money and time on that because it's really important to them. And sometimes it's it's like realizing that, you know, we have, uh, and I've kind of mentioned this before too, we do have power in our own numbers. That is maybe the, the, the one resource that we have that elites don't have. There there are millions upon millions of us who want to see change and who want the the systems, the institutions to change. And so it's being part of part of that and, and reminding myself that um you know that that this activism that sometimes you might feel worn out by it, but the the rewards at the end for everybody will be hopefully will be really good and we'll see a kind of society that um respects people and looks after people and doesn't you know it's just it's too painful to watch people being evicted you know people lying in the streets homeless people starving um and then when you look at the global south it's even a thousand times worse it's just it's it's totally unacceptable I can't love in a world like that and say I'm not going to do anything about it. So it might sound a bit oh, melodramatic and idealistic, but but it really does. At least if I'm doing something small in my own wee patch, I can say, well, at least I'm trying to say, you know, fight back against the way things are. So that does that does keep me going as well. But um, I I think it's it's really powerful when you when you make some progress with something that you've been working on when you work with people. And you're all just doing this work together and nobody is, everybody's doing it for the right reasons and everybody, um, uh, they're trying, you're working together to achieve this goal and you can actually achieve something. That's actually kind of a lovely place to be as well, I think. And that, that also keeps me going. So sometimes when I I just feel like I'm completely burned out, I'm, I'm going to drop dead. I'll talk to one of my friends and then that you know will laugh about it they'll say look i feel the same way or you know you, you just try to 
support each other that way and get mutual support that way. And um, you try to support what they're doing. They try to support what you're doing. And you can see how much goodness there is in people too. So we do, there's a lot of bad out there, but there's also so many good people. And that's when I see people that are, are really trying to make a difference and they don't have a lot, but they have actually all the things that are really important in, in trying to achieve that. That inspires me. Um, and it, it makes me want to keep going. So it's not easy. You have to maybe talk to yourself every day and say, you know, I, I just need to keep going with this. And you keep hoping that this will be the day where you make another breakthrough or you get a wee bit further. But um, it, it really is a lot of positive self-talk to try and keep yourself motivated and try to stop yourself from feeling completely demoralized and broken by it. Um, so that I don't know if that's, that for me is kind of the, the mix that I'm in, the way I think about it at times. Yeah. No, very, very similar. And good networks of friends, as you mentioned. I mean, if you don't have those good networks of friends that you can trust and depend on and, and really talk to in an honest way, I think there's a sort of a myth for people, I think, who haven't been involved with this work that a lot of people who are engaged with political work are just like the consummate optimist or just constantly... Uh, you know, feeling motivated and, and inspired. And I think that's because publicly a lot of times we do, you know, we're trying to put that out there mm. to people and then privately we're constantly <laughs> in a state of despair, binge eating ice cream and <laughs> drinking uh, beer. But anyway, Bridget, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think people well, who, li- who listen and watch got a lot out of it. So. Okay. That's great. Look, thanks Vincent. Yeah, okay. absolutely. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C-Media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia.org. Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.